welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. With just over a week to go before the Football World Cup kicks off, the feel-good factor that normally accompanies one of the great events of world sport has given way this year to disillusionment and recrimination among citizens of the host nation Brazil. At the same time, football's world governing body FIFA is at the centre of a new corruption controversy that has cast a cloud over the sport at the worst possible moment. I'll be teasing out the implications of all this with Ken Early in studio and Tom Hennigan in Brazil. I'll also be speaking to Paddy Woodworth about what's likely to be the real legacy of Spain's King Juan Carlos, who announced this week that he intends to abdicate after almost 40 years on the throne and hand over the crown to his son, Prince Felipe. And what's next for Syria, where voters went to the polls this week to re-elect Bashar al-Assad as president in an exercise described by his opponents as a sham. But first, Brazil. When soccer's governing body FIFA announced in 2007 that the South American country that has won the World Cup five times, more often than any other nation, would host a 2014 competition, the news was greeted by Brazilians with tremendous excitement. To borrow a phrase, football was coming home and the authorities there promised that the inevitable lavish spending on new stadiums for the competition would be accompanied by equally large investment in infrastructure and public services. But it hasn't worked out that way. I'm joined by Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo. Tom, why exactly are so many Brazilians disillusioned about this World Cup? What in particular has disappointed them? Well, it was principally uh, they were told that the World Cup would be a motor for improving infrastructure in their cities. And that just has not materialized. Um, At one stage, the government in Brazil, um, both the federal, state, municipal governments together, said they were going to spend um, up north of around €4 billion on improving urban transport in the cities. And now it's just over a week to go. Only £1 of those projects, more or less, have been delivered. Um, And people are not really sensing in their day-to-day lives in the cities any of the improvements that they were told that the World Cup was going to bring. And that is the main uh, source of disillusionment That has been uh, fed by the fact that they were told that private money would pay for all the new football stadiums. Brazil has built more new stadiums than any other country that has hosted the event, 12. Um, The Brazilian Football Authority said that they had private investments ready to uh, do all that work. That never materialized. No one ever seriously believed that it would. And 90% of the money for the new stadiums is public money. All of that has been spent. Um, And the government uh, has sort of said, look, you know, a lot of these are federal loans and we're going to make the the money back um, in the coming years and decades. But there's a major question mark over that. Uh, A lot of these stadiums are white elephants. Um, You know, the main uh, stadium, national stadium in Brasilia, which is a a wonderful 70,000-seater arena, uh, cost over a billion reais, so over over 300 million euro, and it is in a city that has no team in the first two flights of Brazilian football, and where the average home gate at football games for the local teams is around two, three thousand people, depending on the competition. So there's no way that stadium is is going to be able to repay the loan. So taxpayers will probably have to bail that out at some stage in the future. So it's that that they were lied to about how the stadiums were going to be built and that the promised uh, improvements in their own day-to-day life didn't materialise. That has created a lot of anger. Okay, Tom, if you stay on the line there, I'm joined by um, Ken Early here in studio. Ken, Irish Times football columnist and presenter of the Second Captain's uh, podcast and TV programme. Um, Ken, while these problems in Brazil are playing out, um, it's accompanied by yet another corruption scandal has just hit, hit FIFA 
as I mentioned earlier, probably the worst possible moment. Um, new revelations at the weekend in the Sunday Times about um, documents providing evidence of, of bribery involved in the process that led to Qatar being awarded the, the World Cup for uh, 2022. Uh, how much damage, Ken, do you think is being done to the the football brand, as it were, by all of this? Well, the question is whether you can, whether any more allegations of this kind can actually do any more damage. I mean, is the ha, has the credibility of FIFA not already been completely destroyed such that no further allegations, no further evidence, I should say, because this is evidence rather than allegations, um, can actually do any damage? There's no damage left to do. I mean, it seems to me that FIFA has actually reached that uh, that point. Um, the you know <clears throat> they they've got this tournament which is which is sold as a you know bringing humanity together. I mean all of Sepp Blatter's rhetoric, Sepp Blatter, the FIFA president, all of his rhetoric really over the last ten years has been so uh, magniloquent that it's clear that his his aim is you know the Nobel Peace Prize. That's how seriously he takes himself. That's how important he sees his work on this planet as being, um, and yet. What he has, in fact, done is presided over the, the transformation of the World Cup from being this, you know, I suppose that there was a time when, when the rhetoric almost would have fitted the competition. You know, it was the, the world's biggest sporting event. It was viewed by almost everybody as just a, a great thing. Uh, and he's turned it into this symbol for uh, corruption, for greed, for waste, um, for all of the horrible uh, trends towards economic inequality that there are in the world today. You know, the sort of buying up of everything by the 1%. You know, it's a, that's that's what the World Cup has become on Sepp Blatter's watch. And and, and obviously, the you know, the, these processes, I mean, it's, it's a constant problem of democracy. Um, you know, FIFA is, I suppose, essentially a democratic organization. But the problem is that the people who hold the positions of responsibility don't view themselves as holding positions in trust for the people, but rather as commanding um, a vote which can be sold. Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen it in this country quite a lot, actually. Um, so it's no, it's no surprise, really, to see that it also happens in FIFA. I mean, why would I vote for you? How much are you going to pay me? You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Speaking of Sepp Blatter, even before this, um, the recent revelations of the weekend, he made this extraordinary statement last week in which he said that the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar was a mistake. And then he said, but should we all make mistakes? And mm. I was wondering, is there any other organization in the world where you could imagine the, the chief executive the person at the head of the organization saying we made a mistake of this magnitude and just being able to shrug it off like well, so. I mean, the thing about Sepp is that he can say, well, you know, it's a, it's a democracy. I'm only the president. I mean, I think you call him the chief executive. He's the president. You know, he can't, uh, he's not the He's not the emperor. He can't, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's clear that he wields considerable influence within FIFA, but ultimately that's how the votes went. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody should be under the illusion that Sepp Blatter wanted it to go to Qatar. Um, when it went to Qatar, that was uh, really a big, um, uh, it was a big win for uh, Mohammed bin Hammam, his then rival and the person who is at the center of most of these, uh, he was the person handing out all the money in the Sunday Times documents that, that were released yesterday. Um, so, you know, for, from his point of view, a mistake, yes. Uh, 
a mistake that can maybe be corrected? Maybe yes. I mean, because he said a few things over the last, you know, it's December 2010 that that decision was was made or the vote was made. I don't think Blatter was too happy about it at the time, but obviously welcomed it. He was the FIFA president, you know, and he, he'll make the best of it. It's, it's great that finally the, the Middle East is getting World Cup. You know, that sort of uh, Nobel Peace Prize type, right? You know, bringing another um, section of humanity into the club of those who have, have hosted the World Cup. Um, but were the World Cup to be taken away from Qatar, I don't think, I don't think Sir Blatter would shed too many tears at all. And um, on, on that prospect, w- w- there is an investigation going on, a, a FIFA-appointed investigator, um, uh, Michael Garcia, due to report soon. But it's now emerged he won't be looking at the new documents to do with Qatar. So um, is his investigation likely to have any impact on, on the World Cup taking place in Qatar? Is that set in stone? As far story? as I can see, his investigation is, unless he's already seen all these documents, which I doubt, uh, I don't see anyone who can take his investigation seriously. I mean, it's clearly not going to take into account a lot of pretty damning evidence. Um, I'd like—I I mean, we don't know yet what he does have or what he is going to <clears throat> what he is going to reveal. But it seems to me that any investigation which isn't going to incorporate uh, this information can't. I mean, uh, who who could take it seriously? I mean, they seem to have ignored. If if it just ignores all this, then you know what is what's it going to say? And ultimately, um, Ken Early, I suppose if the sponsors keep coming, uh, and they are still coming, um, FIFA doesn't really have have anything to worry about commercially. The sponsors will keep coming if the fans keep coming. Yeah. And no matter how much we all you know, talk about our maybe disenchantment and disgust with what's going on in FIFA, if you're a football fan like, like I am, and I know you are, we can't wait for the World Cup to start. And... Yeah. Is there is there um, is there anything fans football fans won't accept? I mean, is is there a point at which fans will could turn their backs on this game, and or is there an effective way for fans to make a protest? Mm, well, I don't know. I don't know if there's a question. I mean, uh, games I suppose go in and out of fashion. Um, <laughs> it's not you know the idea that, that football is immune from fashion like everything else is. I don't know. I mean, you, I'm, I'm sure there was a time in the United States when it looked as though baseball would always be the national obsession. It's no longer really the case there um, I think you know sponsors will keep sponsoring it because nothing attracts TV audiences like the World Cup it has the biggest TV audiences of any anything in the world uh, and that's not going to change in the foreseeable future but what might change is the willingness of countries to step forward and host it with the exception of authoritarian or kleptocratic uh, states uh, which are you know, which have the resources to you know to make stadiums spring up in the desert where there's really no need, um, or who are trying to score a propaganda victory for their repressive regime? Who else would want to pay to host the World Cup in the in the guys which it now uh, it, the the type of World Cup that FIFA has created, you know, by expanding it to 32 teams and maybe even further beyond that. As we were talking about 12 stadiums in Brazil, okay, they didn't even ask for 12 stadiums, and there were their own reasons in Brazil why why it ended up being so big. But it's got so big now and so expensive that no uh, right-minded country would actually want to host this tournament in its in its current guise. So maybe that's where I mean, and you can already see this problem having uh, taken place in uh, as regards to the European Championships, which in Europe uh, in, in the 2020 edition. I mean, the next one in 2016 is in France. In 2020 is going it, there isn't a host, so it's going to be this diffuse tournament, which is in various cities around Europe. The reason being that there isn't a host. You know, there there, there wasn't a country who was prepared to step up and foot the bill at this time. So unless you've got um, 
you know, countries like Qatar and Russia and steady supply of those countries who want to uh, who want to host it. Maybe by 2026, people are going to look at it and have to scratch their heads and think, well, suddenly people aren't rushing forward to host this thing anymore. Is there something that we need to do to change it? And Tom Hennigan, do you think if uh, Brazilians had the opportunity again, uh, it was rewind the clock 2007, would they want to host this World Cup? Uh, no, I don't think they would. Um, I don't think uh, the citizens would want us, uh, having known how it's all planned out. I would also suspect that many people in the government, including uh, President Dilma Rousseff, wouldn't want us. Uh, she is no known fan of football, uh, never shown any previous interest in us. And um, she has had the air of someone who feels distracted by all the problems involved in organizing the World Cup. Um, she's also been very harsh on Brazil's football authorities. So even though she's meant to be working with the CBF, uh, the, the local FA down here, on organizing the event, she refuses to meet its head for political reasons because he was a, a leading member of the dictatorship uh, when she was a guerrilla fighting it. Um, so I think there's even within the government people who would probably not want to host it. And then Ronaldo, uh, the former striker who's on the local organizing committee, uh, he gave a, a talk to a public uh, audience here last week. And he said that FIFA would never give it to Brazil again because FIFA are tearing their hair out at what a mess the Brazilians have made of, of the preparations. So I think on all sides, no one would want to try and run it again in Brazil. And in two years' time, we have the Olympics in, in Rio de Janeiro. Are we, are we in for the same sort of um, process all over again? Or um, are the preparations for the Olympics um, looking at, are, are they in a better, better shape than the, the way the, the World Cup um, build-up has gone? I'd, I'd love to say they are. And uh, a few years ago, there was a certain confidence that the local Olympic committee was making a better fist at its preparations than the football authorities were for the, the World Cup ones. But then just a few weeks ago, the Olympic Committee came out with a very strong statement saying that they are very worried about what's going on in Rio. So Rio was quite good at drawing up plans, but executing them is proving something altogether more difficult. And that's a real problem in Brazil. Um, you know, we have a very cumbersome bureaucracy, a very cumbersome legal process, and they're trying to organize an event that requires a huge amount of new infrastructure in a city that, because of uh, local politics in Rio, which is very, very populist and corrupt, and because, you know, in all of Brazil during the 80s and 90s, there was an economic crisis that meant there was little infrastructure put in place. Rio, more than many of the other Olympic cities in recent years, needs a complete makeover to be ready to hold the event. And that challenge just seems now to be really straining the authorities there. So, unfortunately, it looks like once the World Cup is done and dusted, we're going to have to go through uh, the same sort of gnashing of teeth in the build-up to the Olympics as we have for the World Cup itself. I have to say that having covered both the World Cup and the Olympics, um, I used to think that the World Cup was a much bigger event than the Olympic Games, and maybe by television audiences um, and, you know, the, the sort of global reach, you know, maybe it, it, it is. But the Olympic Games is actually a much bigger or more complex event to host than the World Cup. I mean, if you just look at the number of competitors, I think in London there's 10,500 competitors. 
as against however many, 23 times 32, if you can do that, however many footballers are in the World Cup. Um, I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, what is it, 64 matches, 64 football matches have to be played. You need to build stadiums and so on. But actually, that's quite simple to organize. You know, you, see, you, know, it's, you know, all these matches, it's, it's not very difficult. The Olympics, on the other hand, is so many moving parts there's so much organization. It's while maybe it happens over a smaller area, it's going to be in one city as opposed to spread out over several cities. That one city is hosting so much. I mean, and as Tom was saying, the infrastructure, I mean, you've got to build all these venues for the different sports, but then you, everything has to be timed and everything has to be organized in the transport. It's so much more complex that if um, there are problems hosting the World Cup, then you can imagine the Olympics is far more difficult. So, Tom, it looks like you're going to be busy for. Another couple of years at least. I'll leave it there. Tom Hennigan and Sao Paulo, thanks very much for that. And thanks to Ken Early in studio. And next to Syria, where three candidates went before the people this week in a presidential election that was always going to have only one winner, the incumbent Bashar al-Assad. Michael Jansen joins us from Damascus. Michael, you had a very interesting interview today with Hassan al-Nuri, one of the, the other candidates, if you like, in this Syrian election. And he pretty much said he wants Bashar al-Assad to win. Is this indicative of how farcical this election really is? Well, I, he uh, speaks as a member of what he calls the loyal opposition. Uh, and he is critical of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, but he thinks that uh, Assad is the only man for the situation as it is now. Uh, many Syrians agree with him on this issue. Uh, they say Bashar must solve the situation, and then we will see whether he stays or leaves later on. As most Syrians are voting in this election because they want to have the restoration of security and safety. And they will worry about democracy somewhere down the road. But of course, um, there, there is the question, Michael, of what people will do in... Um in a polling station and, and, you know, what they sort of really feel uh, deep down. Do you, is it your sense that in Damascus there is still a, a real level of support for Assad because, as you say, they see him as somebody who possibly can provide stability and security? Yes, there's that. And then there is the other side of the question, which is that this is the first ever multi-candidate presidential election in Syria. And uh, many people see this as the first step towards uh, democracy. They see it as a very small step, but they see it as the first step towards democracy. And they cannot believe that this is taking place at this time of war, but they celebrate that. Um, it's, as I say, it's very difficult to see uh, exactly what the turnout is because the, of the multiplicity of voting stations. And but it is your sense, Michael, is it that quite a number of people are going? You said, I mean, are, are there are there lines of people at polling stations, or does, does yes, voting yes, look I brisk? I went to one polling station where they were just about to have to change the box because it was full of votes and people were having to stuff votes in uh, with pressure. Uh, others polling stations were about half full, but that was a couple of hours ago. I haven't been out to check on the polling stations to see how many people voted in the past three or four hours. 
And Michael, you're you're a frequent uh, visitor to, to Damascus, um, so you're somebody who can sort of see the trends and see how things are changing there or not. Um, what's the current atmosphere like there? Are um, are, are people going about their regular business? Um, and are they in any way optimistic that this three-year well, nightmare are going may be coming their to an regular end? business because they have no choice. If they they don't go to work, they don't earn whatever small salary or whatever small profit they get from their business. Um, the shops do close earlier than normal in Syria. I mean, uh, I was out until about eight eight thirty on Sunday night, and the shops in the big souks were closing down. Normally, they stay open until late at night, but Small shops in the neighborhood where I'm staying, which is in central Damascus, stay open until 10, 11 o'clock at night. And there have been entertainers roaming around town, attracting people out of their homes into the streets to listen to singing and to take part in dancing, which which is going on right now, not very far from where I'm staying. Okay, and Michael, finally and, and, and briefly, I have to ask you maybe about the prospects for the future. As we know, last month, the U.S. Special Envoy, Lakhtar Brahimi, um, re- stepped down from his position, and that was probably seen as bringing an end to the, the Geneva process, which was an, an attempt uh, to broker a deal involving the various regional powers and, and, um, and, and, and Western powers as well. Um, is there any, any prospect of a revival of that process or some other process to try to bring an end to this war? Well, my sources who, who are on the international side have said that the Geneva process is finished and that there has to be a new process launched by whoever is uh, sent to replace Mr. Brahimi um, and that there have to be new ideas. And one of the things that one of these international sources said to me was that the the new process has to be based on the idea of sharing power with Dr. Assad uh, rather than replacing him because he is not going anywhere. And this is what uh, the advances of the Syrian army into uh, insurgent-held areas seems to show. Okay. Um, We've run out of time. Michael Jansen in Damascus, thank you very much for that. And finally, to Spain. King Juan Carlos surprised Spaniards and indeed observers around the world this week with his sudden announcement that he intends to step down from the throne and hand over to his son, Prince Felipe. I'm joined on the line by Paddy Woodworth, a long-time commentator on Spanish affairs who has been writing about Spain for the Irish Times since 1978 and has written uh, several critically acclaimed books on that country. Um, Paddy, although the Spanish royal family has been hit by several controversies in, in recent years, Many tributes have been paid to Juan Carlos this week, and most of them focusing on his perceived role in steering Spain towards democracy after the death of Francisco Franco uh, in in the 1970s, that, uh, who'd been ruled Spain since, since for, for nearly four decades, um, and also his role in, in 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 facing down the plotters behind an attempted coup in 1981. What do you think his legacy will be? Was he really the champion of democracy that everybody says he was? Well, he became a champion of democracy, and I wouldn't want to take that away from him. But I do feel deeply uncomfortable with the kind of uh, unalloyed tributes to, uh, to that period of his life, because I think the history of Spain in that period of the transition between Francoism and the democracy that Spain subsequently became, imperfect as it is, um, 
Uh, I, I think that's a much more complex period with darker sides, and I think there's a darker side to Juan Carlos, and that if there's any model for Juan Carlos, it's probably Machiavelli's book, uh, appropriately titled The Prince. Because as a prince, Juan Carlos was tutored from the age of 10 by Franco. He was taken away from his father, who was the, if you believe in monarchs, the legitimate king of Spain at the time, the Bourbon line, uh, Juan de Bourbon. Uh, Franco didn't even allow his father to enter Spain during this period. He kept him well away because Franco wanted to keep the reins of state power in his own hands, and he wanted to reinvent a monarchy that would really be, we think, in his image. So uh, he, he declares in 1969 that, that, that Juan Carlos is his successor. So Fra- Juan Carlos is a monarch appointed in the first place by a dictator. Uh, he comes to power in 1975 on Franco's death. And, um, however, he's a very bright young man. Uh, he appeared to be quite stupid. People thought he was stupid. They called him uh, uh, King Juan Carlos the Short because they didn't think he'd last very long, even though he's very tall. Um, but he um, wasn't stupid at all. And he was well aware that while on the surface Spain remained an authoritarian dictatorship, and Franco said, I have left everything tied up and well tied up. In fact, it had been hollowed out by the forces of democracy. And that's what I really want to say here is not, not that Juan Carlos didn't play a good role in that process, but that democracy was brought to Spain by Democrats, not by kings. And that, in fact, you had, so you had situations where even though there were officially only the fascist trade unions operating in the country, in fact, all intelligent foreign companies operating in Spain at the time negotiated with illegal left-wing-led trade unions, which subsequently became legal and are the only unions in Spain today, or are the main unions in Spain today. Um, and so um, the king knew that, and I, I think the, the historian Paul Preston puts this very well, that in order to get to the throne, he had to stay close to Franco. But in order to keep the throne, he had to become close to Democrats. And so he maneuvered between uh, the old establishment. And he's, he's a very charming man. It's, it's absolutely impossible, I think, uh, to dislike him. He's a good sense of humor. But again, he comes across in this bluff kind of way that the old military types really liked him. And he kind of charmed them into believing that nothing would really change under democracy, while he was promising to the Democrats that everything was going to change. And I think the really interesting question about Spain today is how much really did change? Because one of the conditions, and I think this is the sinister side, of the transition to democracy in Spain was what was openly called a pact of silence. And that meant that unlike in Nazi Germany, for example, there would be no investigation into the war crimes committed by the dictatorship, which had, after all, was born on the destruction of a previous democracy, the Spanish Second Republic. There would be no investigation of those crimes. Um, I mean, they could be reported on historically, but there would be no judicial investigation of them. Nobody would be responsible. And so you get a bizarre situation today where somebody like Jaime Mayor Reja, a long-standing senior member of the Spanish Conservative Party, and this is the Spanish Conservative Party. It's, it's like the Tories in Britain. Um, uh, it, it, it's uh, or, or our own Fine Gael or, or possibly Fianna Fáil. Uh, it's, it, it's not supposed to be a far-right party. But yet you get senior members of this party still saying quite recently things like, why should the Spanish people condemn the dictatorship? We lived it as an absolutely normal circumstance. 
So there was no kind of denazification. There was no de-Francoification. I mean, in a sense, how could there have been? Because Franco's heir was sitting on the throne. Is that now, realistic, though, Paddy? Is it realistic? Um, e- even if Juan Carlos's motivation was, as, as I think you're suggesting, his, his main motivation was the preservation of, of, of the monarchy and, and, and self-survival. I think that's maybe one part of the, one of the points you're making. But it still was an incredible, um, an incredibly, I suppose, skillful manoeuvre to manoeuvre Spain from dictatorship. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. And, and it is a real democracy. I mean, it, it was it was certainly a very real change. Uh, it was a very real change, but I would argue that it's an incomplete change and that the Spanish judiciary, for example, is still very much uh, uh, influenced, by, influenced, by politic, influenced by politics. It's not a truly independent judiciary. And without an independent judiciary, it's very hard to build a real democracy. And I think there's a great deal of pain in Spain at the uh, refusal to investigate the past. And then I think if we move to the coup in 1981... Uh, which the king gets enormous credit for, for having uh, stood down uh, a military coup on on the night when Parliament was occupied by the Guardia Civil and there were tanks on the streets of Valencia, and it really looked like a return to the dictatorship. And the king spent seven hours, and we don't know what was said in those seven hours, and possibly we never will, talking to the uh, regional military commanders and essentially apparently persuading them uh, to stand down, return to barracks where they had left barracks in a couple of cases, and, uh, and democracy was restored to Spain the next day. And the outcome of this was, of course, that the monarchy became enormously popular, that any doubts that many people on the left and in the centre had about the king were dispelled, because he was, after all, the man who had protected Spanish democracy from the generals. However, I think if you look at those events a little more closely, you'll see that there are still big unanswered questions about them. And it does appear that the king was at least sympathetic to the idea of what was called a soft coup in the months approaching the coup. And this would have been the creation of a, you know, a a government of national unity, which would have included a couple of generals, that that kind of thing, and that would have rolled back the the movement towards autonomy in Catalonia and the Basque country. And uh, what happens after the coup is interesting, because, in fact, the, the, the parliament... Um, I mean, you know, very respectable historians have described the parliament uh, after the coup. I don't mean ever after the coup, but I mean in the, in, in, in the months and, and indeed years after the coup as being completely crippled. And, and they did attempt, unsuccessfully, it has to be said, to roll back autonomy in Catalonia and the Basque country. And there is a view that while the king stood down a hard coup that night, uh, Effectively, a soft coup was was actually implemented that hobbled the development of democracy in Spain. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Spain is not a democracy today, but I'm saying that it's a very imperfect one and that uh, it needs to develop much, much further. I think you see this in the anger of the young generation today and relatively young, I mean, under 40, who in the 1990s began to say, you know, why are 30,000 people buried in unmarked graves in Spain today? It's not that anybody wanted to go back and refight the civil war or take vengeance on the people who'd killed their parents. They wanted their buried dead to be treated with the same respect, the enormous respect, 
that the fascist dead were treated in war memorials all over Spain, but they weren't allowed under a democracy. They weren't allowed for 20, 30 years, and they're still having great difficulty in opening some of those graves because of conservative local administrations, conservative judges. And I, I, I do think that, that one of the king's conditions for a transition from dictatorship to democracy was that the crimes of the dictatorship could not be investigated. And think about it, in Latin America, in much more fragile, one would imagine, countries, where there have been transitions from dictatorship to democracy, even more recently, there have been investigations, there have even been trials, and generals have been sent to, to jail. And um, I think what you're seeing in Spain literally today is quite interesting, where nobody is running out onto the street saying, Juan Carlos, please don't go. Juan Carlos, we love you. But tens of thousands of people are on the streets of Madrid and on the streets of Barcelona and Valencia demanding a republic. And I think that we're at a, we're at a moment of great change in Spain. It's, not, it's no coincidence that the king has resigned at this moment, undoubtedly influenced by the scandals you mentioned earlier, but also surely influenced by the outcome of the European elections, where a party, Podemos, a left-wing radical party, has taken five European seats. This is a party that was never heard of a few months ago because the economic crisis in Spain has bitten very, very deeply. People are very, very angry. And uh, I think even uh, a commentator as careful and sober as Iñaki Gabilondo uh, uh, on a video in El País today, Gabilondo is kind of the equivalent of Jeremy Paxman, uh, or maybe John Bowman in, 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 in Spain. And Gavilondo is saying today, we must make this abdication an opportunity for a second transition. There must be a real transformation in Spain. So I do, I, I'm putting a counter view to be sure, and I don't want to take away from Juan Carlos's courage, from his intelligence, or the debt that Spain undoubtedly owes him. It would have been much, much worse if he had continued with the dictatorship and Democrats had had to fight a war uh, to make any kind of transition. That's undoubtedly true. But I think his legacy needs to be looked at in a much harder, colder way than is being done in the tributes being paid to him this week. Okay. And just finally, Paddy, and briefly, do you think the monarchy will survive um, this change? As you say, people were out in the streets uh, yesterday, but the main the main political parties, um, both centre-left, centre-right, seem committed to... to um, facilitating the abdication. So what do you think is likely to happen in the immediate future in that respect? Well, I think the interesting question is those main political parties have just been hammered in European elections to an unprecedented degree. And, and no, you know, just like in, in our country, we don't know how this new politics is going to manifest itself. I think what I would say is that Prince Felipe appears to be a serious young man, as serious and as bright as his father. He has worked very hard in training for the job for many years. He has actually been carrying out many of his father's functions uh, in recent years and appears to be doing so very well. Uh, the scandals that have touched the royal family haven't touched him at all. So he starts in a strong position, but... Uh, if he were to be uh, a figure in the second transition in Spain, uh, uh, he'll have his work cut out just as his father did before him. Paddy Woodward, thank you for that. A very interesting perspective. Well, that's all from this week's edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis and me, Chris Dooley. Goodbye.